Oh, there I go. Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 14. If you don't have your Bibles, of course, it'll be up on the screen, but I would encourage you to bring your Bible to church if you have them. What we're going to read is one of the most well-known stories of something that happened with Jesus and his disciples. Most of you in here, no doubt, have heard probably several sermons on this particular story, and I've even preached from it myself here. But the reason why I've chosen to do so again is because there's something in here that has a lot to do with what the Lord is telling us in regards to what he is really doing in this church body right now. There are some key parallels between this story and and what God's been doing here in this body. This is immediately after Jesus and the disciples fed 5,000 people miraculously with five loaves of bread and two fish. And we're going to pick up with what happened next, starting in verse 22. So let's all stand together in honor of the Word of God. Immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's Son. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you once again for your word and how it is life to us, because it points us to the only source of life, and that is Jesus Christ. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would open our eyes, and even though this is a story that so many of us are familiar with, we probably heard so many teachings and sermons on this, I pray that you enlighten us to something in here that we may not have ever seen before. We would see you in ways that we haven't before and be changed by that. Lord, show us this morning what we need to repent of and what we need to believe to take part and what your kingdom is doing now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> How many of you have ever tried paddling a boat against the wind? Fun, isn't it? <laughs> if you've got an outboard motor, yeah, it, it's fun. But if you don't have a motor and all you have is a paddle, it, it's not fun at all. It can be very frustrating. And one of the things that makes it so frustrating is just the mind game that goes on. And what I'm talking about is that when your boat is trying to go in one direction and the wind is blowing strong in the opposite direction, it blows those waves past the boat at a pretty good clip. And so what your mind is seeing is that this boat is moving because all the waves are going this way. 
And, but then you look out on the shore or a buoy or something that you kind of get a landmark by and you see that you're not making any progress at all. And so what your eyes are seeing compared to what's actually happened in reality is just, it, it messes with you. And it just makes you so frustrated. The disciples, this is what was going on with them, but they had it a whole lot worse because the wind was blowing so hard it was just causing these big waves to crash back and forth against the boat. And then on top of all that, this was in the, the dead of night. So it's pitch dark out there. They, they've got no landmarks. They can't see to know if they're making any progress at all or not. All they can do is just strain at the oars and hope that they're getting somewhere, but not really knowing. What a great picture of the way that so many people are living their lives today. And I'm talking about Christians. And life just seems to be nothing but straining at the oars and not really knowing if you're making any progress at all. Some of you may be straining at the oars in your marriage. You want things to get better, but it continues to be the struggle. And you make a little headway, and then it's like one step forward and three steps back. And it's just this back and forth, back and forth, constantly straining at the oars, not knowing if you're really making any progress at all and not sure how long this is going to be able to last. For others of you, it may be some besetting sin in your life that you struggle with and And then you do good for a while, and then you fall, then you repent, and then you do good for a while again, but eventually you fall, and then you repent, and then you do good for us, just back and forth, back and forth, constantly straining at the oars trying to overcome these things, but never really knowing how much progress you're actually making. For others, it may be your relationship with God that just seems like you're straining against the oars. You come to church every week, listen to a sermon, sing a few songs, go home, come back and do it all over again the next week, listen to a sermon, sing some songs, go home over and over and over, but it doesn't seem like you're really making any progress at all in your spiritual growth, your spiritual life, just your relationship with God seems like straining at the oars against the wind. I mean, you know you're going to go to heaven someday. You know there's a destination over there that you're eventually going to get to, but the journey until then is just not very fun right now. This whole series that we've been in since the 1st of January has really been about God telling us that life does not have to be that way. That there is a higher, a better kind of way of living that he has called us to, that he has made available to us. There's so much more to life than many of us have resigned ourselves to believing that this is just as good as it's going to get. And what's been missing there is the supernatural power that has been made available to sons and daughters of the king. A few of us just got back yesterday from the Epic Conference uh, me, Danny, and Casey got there a little late, and so the first message that we heard was from J.R. Vassar, who happened to be talking about, of all things, the Holy Spirit. And he pointed out something that was so good. He was preaching out of Romans eight twelve through 17. And he pointed out how in that text it is showing, they're telling us that the, the number one 
distinguishing mark of a Christian versus a non-Christian, what makes Christians different from those who don't belong to Jesus, is that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the living God, the presence of Jesus actually lives inside of us. The presence of the Holy Spirit lives in us. He does not live in those who don't know Jesus. The problem is that many of us have treated that truth as nothing more than just an assumed theological reality rather than an actual experience, something that actually affects the way we live. In other words, we believe it, we assume that that's true simply because the Bible says that's the case, but we aren't really seeing that manifested in any way in the way that we actually live our lives There's going to be, there should be evidence of the fact that you've got the Spirit of God living inside of you. He didn't put it there, put himself there just for us to continue to live life like we did before we knew him. Just continue to strain at the oars. The evidence is going to be in the fact that our lives are just lived radically differently than the rest of the world. That doesn't mean we just go to church every week and those who don't know Jesus don't. It's a lot bigger difference than that. It's a a difference in the form of sin in our life just constantly being put to death. The only way we can do that is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We weren't able to do that before we knew Jesus. It's going to be in the form of the attitudes that we have in the middle of the struggles and trials that we face. It's going to be in the form of the way that we love each other and in the form of the gifts of the Spirit being used and evident in our lives that we've been looking at for the past four weeks, how those things are used for the glory of God. Vassar also made this point, which I thought was excellent. He said, the great promise of the gospel is not merely that your sins are forgiven. The great promise of the gospel is that your sins have been removed so that the Spirit of God can now dwell in you. The primary purpose was not the forgiveness of sins. That was a means for the primary purpose of God's presence to be living in you, for you to be housing the very presence of God here on earth. Many Christians today are only living from the truth that their sins are forgiven. It's just a ticket to heaven. Life just goes on as normal, but at least I get to go to heaven because my sins are forgiven. But they have absolutely no idea what it means to actually allow the Holy Spirit to to empower you and and live uh, the life of Jesus through you. That's what we've been looking at for the last two months. Notice in the story here, it says that Jesus sent the disciples across the way in the boat. He sent them. You think he knew what they were going to be in for? Of course he did. And he went up to a mountain to pray. Man, wouldn't you love to know what he was praying I bet it had a lot to do with these 12 men that were out there straining at the oars at that moment. And you know, it it wasn't like they were 
doing this for just a few minutes. It says that when Jesus went up to the mountain, it was evening. And then when he came to them later on, fourth watch of the night, which is early in the morning, like between 3 and 6 o'clock in the morning. So they had been doing this for a long time. They probably had calluses busting on their hands, their shoulders, you know, about to fatigue. I mean, there, there was probably some words being spewed out in that boat that could not have been recorded here in this story. I mean, they were, they were struggling. What happened here is an illustration of something that Jesus would say to them later on, right before his execution. I've quoted it a few times during this series. It's when Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 16 through 18, he said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not seem or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The disciples had no idea what Jesus meant when he said that. And when the Holy Spirit did come that morning, they were all gathered together in the upper room. I'm sure it was nothing like what they expected it to be. What they thought that might look like when Jesus said he was going to send the Holy Spirit. Just like that night in the boat when Jesus suddenly appeared to them on the water. Look again at verse 25. In the fourth watch of the night he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. This is where I believe some of us are in regards to what we've been looking at in this series on the power of the Spirit. Last week I mentioned how we so often allow fear to keep us from the things of God. That it's fear that holds us back from pursuing and joining God in the things that we believe that He is inviting us The fear of something that we may not have ever been exposed to before or been taught about before. It's just the fear of the unknown. The fear of being burned because of the bad experiences that we've had in the past. The fear of things getting out of order in here. The fear of someone worshiping in a way that we're not comfortable with. And and let me just affirm right now, those, those fears are legitimate. Because there is a risk of every one of those things happening. There is. But the question before us is, is the risk worth the reward? I believe that it is. And here's why. What I believe that God is calling us to is simply a higher level in our relationship with him. It's a deeper intimacy, a higher level of trust. A greater surrender of all that we are to him. He's calling us into something more with him. The way to know him and experience him in ways that many of us never have before. All those supernatural gifts of the spirit that we looked at for the last four weeks. Let me tell you something. The goal is not the gifts. 
That's not the goal. The goal is to know Jesus more and more, to follow his leading, to obey his direction, to be completely surrendered to him. All the the, the supernatural gifts are just a byproduct, an outflow of that. But it's all about intimacy and just being completely given of yourself to Jesus. I believe that what God is doing in this church is just he's calling us out to join him in what he is doing. Calling us out of the things that we're comfortable in where we feel safe and and not threatened or challenged or uncomfortable in any way. He's saying, I've got more for you than that. And it's going to require us stepping out in a level of trust that many of us have never been in with God before. Which is exactly what we see in this story. Jesus suddenly appeared while the disciples were straining at the oars. He walked out there displaying a better way of doing it. A better way of getting across the water. A higher way. And notice... He didn't make the storm quiet in that moment. I mean, the wind was still raging. The the waves were still rolling. Jesus wasn't fighting the waves, though, like the disciples were. He was walking on top of them. So basically, he was saying, hey, this is a tough situation. I know it. But let me show you a better way of getting through this situation. I'm not going to end the situation. I'm just showing you a different and better way of doing it which I don't think he intended for them all to get out and go follow him to the shore like that, but it was just symbolic of the fact that when he enters our life, he says, I've got a better way of doing what you've been struggling with for so long. Scared the disciples when they first saw him because it was something that they had never seen before, never experienced before. It wasn't normal. It wasn't what they were used to, which I believe is the kind of life that Jesus is inviting every one of us into with him. Peter was the only one who was apparently sick enough of fighting the oars, so he was willing to give this a shot. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. I believe there's many of you in here that are like Peter. You have known for a while that they're just has to be more to life in Christ than you've been experiencing. There's been this longing in you for whatever it is that that God wants for you. You've been feeling this this calling, this tug of the Holy Spirit for you to, to step out. To, to get out of the boat and everything that he's been saying to us as a church since the beginning of January, you're like, Lord, if it is really you, then, then tell me to come. I'm willing to step out. I'm tired of straining at the oars in my own strength. I want whatever it is that you are offering. But the main point of this story today comes from what happened when Peter did step out. Verse 30, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and began, beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Not only did Peter get to do something that no other human before or since has ever done, walked on the water, but he also did what everyone else in the boat was afraid of. 
he sank. He got his eyes off of Jesus for a moment, and he began to sink in the water. If we are going to be a church willing to step out of our comfort zones and follow in the lead of the Holy Spirit, I just want us to all know up front that we're going to mess up at times. We're going to. There's just no way of avoiding it. I can stand up here all day long till I'm blue in the face and say that we are going to guard against the abuse and misuse of the gifts, but no matter how much I say that, people are still going to make mistakes. Some are going to get away from Scripture. Some will get their eyes off of Jesus. Somebody's going to do something that's out of order. Somebody may worship in a way that brings more attention to them than it does to Jesus. Somebody may give what they think is a prophetic word and it not being that. Somebody may speak out in tongues in a setting where they shouldn't. And Here's the main point I want to make today. How we respond to that will indicate how much we know Jesus will indicate how active and alive the Holy Spirit is in this church. How should we respond? The same way Jesus did when Peter messed up and began to sink. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, and he took hold of him. I don't believe for a second he reached out and took hold of him in anger and condemnation. He reached out and took hold of him in love and grace. I'll tell you, what makes me the most apprehensive about all this stuff that we've been looking at and people stepping out in faith, things, new things that they may not have done before, what makes me the most apprehensive about that is not that they might mess up and do it wrong. What makes me the most apprehensive is how some people will react to when they do. Because believe you me, church people can be some of the meanest and most judgmental people there are. Notice I didn't say Christians, I said church people. There can be a difference between the two. And how we respond to others when we think they're wrong, they're out of order, they're too expressive, will show whether we are full of Jesus or we're just a bunch of self-righteous, judgmental, religious folk. My prayer is that we will be the former rather than the latter. When Jesus reached out and raised Peter up, he said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt it seems like this should be something that he should have been saying to those in the boat. Because at least Peter had enough faith to actually get out of the boat. But the text shows he directed it towards Peter. You know why he didn't say it to the others? Because staying in the boat doesn't require any faith at all. Zero. It requires zero faith. Faith to stay in what you know, what's comfortable, what's safe. What's sad is that those who aren't walking in any faith at all tend to be the ones that are the most critical of the ones who are. 
Reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Teddy Roosevelt. He said in a speech that he gave that applies perfectly to this. It will be up on the screen. He said, it is not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who is actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who at worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold, timid souls who neither know victory nor defeat. Yeah, Peter got his eyes off of Jesus for a moment, and he did what everyone was afraid would happen. He sank. Peter messed up. But you know what else he did? He got to walk on water. He walked on water. You know what happened to those that stayed in the boat? Nothing. They didn't fall. They didn't mess up. They didn't get to walk on water either. I wonder how many of them later on regretted not stepping out. Just thinking back on that incident later and going, man, I wish I'd have stepped out. Golly, to walk on water would have been so cool. One of my favorite verses in Proverbs is verse 4 of chapter 14, which says, Where no oxen are, the manger is clean. But much revenue comes by the strength of the ox. What that means is that if you owned an ox back in those days, you had the ability to make a lot of money from that in many different ways. But with that comes the fact that the stall that you keep it in is going to get dirty. And you're going to have to clean it out every once in a while. The best way not to have a messy stall is to just not have an ox. But it also means you're not going to get the benefits that owning an ox brings. The point is, the value of the ox is worth the mess that it makes. A church that is willing to step out of the boat and follow the leading of the Holy Spirit, I'm telling you right now, it's going to be a messy church. It is. And the sign of the Holy Spirit being active and alive in a church body is not the absence of the messes and the struggles and the conflicts and the mistakes, but it's how those things are dealt with. It's how those things are dealt with. Show me a church with no drama, no messes, everything's perfect, everyone gets along, everyone's comfortable, and I will show you some people who are professionals at putting on their masks. They're good at it, boy. They know how to play that religious game, make everybody think like they've got it all together. Tell you right now, pretending and putting on a false impression that everything's okay and that you've got it all together, I believe, quenches the spirit more than anything else does. What quenches the spirit is not those who make mistakes trying to pursue the spirit. What quenches it is those that just want to be comfortable all the time, not willing to step out into things that the Spirit is leading them in. The best way to avoid any drama and messes in the church is to stay in the boat, stick to the status quo, don't get too crazy, just go through the motions of religion. I don't want to be that kind of a church. 
Most of you, I don't think you do either. Or you wouldn't be at this church in the first place. But we've got to be willing to deal with the messes that come from stepping out in what God is leading us to. He never promised that there wouldn't be messes and difficulty and conflict and friction. What he did promise is that by the power of his spirit, he would give us the tools to deal with those things in a way that brings him glory. So far in this series, we've spent a lot of time in 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14, which is all about stepping out and being used in supernatural ways. Right smack dab in the middle of those two chapters is chapter 13. I know it's very familiar to most of us. Let's look at it again. Right in the middle of his instruction on how The supernatural gifts of the Spirit are to be used. Paul says this, starting in verse 1. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. My favorite part is those last few words, love endures all things. It endures the mistakes that people make. It endures the way that some worship in a way that we're not comfortable with. It endures the messes that the ox makes. Look, folks, just because of the nature of the kind of a church we are, being non-denominational and so many of us coming from so many very different backgrounds and worship styles and, and things that we're used to and not, when it comes to the gifts of the Spirit and expressive worship and things like that, there will always be people in this church who think it's not enough, and there will always be people who think it's too much. No matter what we do, It's either going to be not enough or too much to some in here. Traditionally, the way that is handled is that you look at that and think, well, which one are we going to make happy? Well, which one's tithe the most? I'm not going to do anything to try to make either side happy because... You know which side Jesus would pick? Neither one. He's on his side. The side of of love. And the question is not which side is eventually going to win out. The question is, can both sides love each other? Can both sides love and bless each other? Someone is worshiping the Lord in a way that you're not comfortable with or they're doing it out of order or somebody's making a mistake in the use of the gifts or something, you're going to criticize them or you're going to bless them 
and love on them. When we went through all those gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, notice that I didn't talk about the gift of criticism. Because it's not a spiritual gift. Although, by the way, some Christians talk, you would think that it was because that's about the only thing that they do operate in. But it's not. And don't think discernment is the same as criticism. It's not. No matter which side you're on, Philippians 2.3 commands us, with humility of mind, think of one another as more important than yourselves. Let me tell you, it's not talking about think of those that agree with you as more important than yourselves. It's not talking about those that are on the same side you are. Think of them, the ones that are on the other side, the ones that don't see it the way you do. Think of them as more important than yourselves. When things get messy in a church, for a lot of folks, their initial reaction is just to want to run from it. And think, oh my gosh, the church is falling apart. Part of the reason is that for that is because we have been so conditioned in our culture to think that church is supposed to be this, this perfect, pristine environment. The truth is, I believe a messy church is a healthy church. And the reason why is because if we are doing things to shake the kingdom and challenge the status quo, there is going to be resistance to that. There is going to to be friction. You cannot sell out for Jesus and not expect resistance. I'm going to tell you right now, Satan is looking for every opportunity he can when these little things pop up to create these, these little subtle divisions and then fissures and then cracks that eventually leads to chasms that completely divides us and destroys the unity of this body. We cannot allow him to do that we have got to be on our guard and the best way he can get us to start doing that is to start criticizing one another thing is when people make mistakes saying you're going to love of them love on them does not mean well just go ahead and just let them do their thing no you bring correction but if that correction is not brought in love they're not going to receive it A healthy church is a loving church, and it corrects in love, not just sit back and criticize. Instead of avoiding the messiness, we should embrace it, and here's why. Because those messes are an awesome opportunity for us to not just talk about the gospel, sing about the gospel, but actually live the gospel out in real time. Grace, forgiveness, love, patience, self-control, healing, restoration, The stuff of the gospel is not needed in a sterile environment. They're not. Jesus said, I came for the sick, not the healthy. Forgiveness is only needed when a wrong has been committed. 1 Corinthians 13, love shines brightest when it's given to those that are, it's the hardest to love on. Grace isn't grace at all if it's given to those that we think deserve it. Grace, by definition, is given to those that we think deserve it the least. 
These messy situations just create opportunity for those things, opportunities for the stuff of the gospel, and creates opportunities for Jesus to be magnified in some incredible ways. One of the most important things that Jesus said when he was here on earth was that he told us the way that people will know that we actually belong to him. He said, by this, all men will know that you're my disciples, that you belong to me. And I'm sure they're all sitting there waiting. Oh, wait, yeah, the key here, what is it? What is it? It's some kind of clothes we got to wear. We all get to wear a cool T-shirt now. It's the way we cut our hair, just like back in old days. Man, we got new hairstyle. No. By this, all men will know that you belong to me, not how expressive you are in worship, not how evident the gifts of the Spirit are, not how perfect and drama-free your church is, but by your love for one another. You're different because you love one another. Not because you all agree and get along about the same things, but because you love each other in spite of it. In the middle of it. Yeah, you can clap that. And so my prayer is that if we are going to pursue the things that God is calling us into, first and foremost, we're going to pursue pursue love. His love, not the love, the definition of the world, but this definition of love. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your love. The only way that we have access to it is because you gave yourself to die for us on a cross. You rose again to give us your life. Lord, there's so many of us that are still just living life our own way the way that we know, the way that's comfortable, even though it's frustrating, even though it's just straining at the oars. Lord, I pray that we would see there's a higher way of living that you have made available to us. Lord, I pray for those that When I was talking about different areas of in life where it feels like they're straining at the oars, Lord, those that that hit a nerve with. And you're telling them right now it does not have to continue to be that way. I've made something available to you to help you through that. Lord, that they would step out and come to a place of complete surrender to you. Lord, for those of us who have just been content to stay in what we know and what's safe and what's comfortable, put on our mask and pretend like everything is okay, Lord, I pray for an attitude and a spirit of repentance to just sweep all over this place right now. For those of us who have been so critical at things that we're not comfortable with, that we don't understand, Pray for an attitude and a spirit of repentance to just sweep over us right now. And that we would believe that the love that you have given us, it was not meant for us to just contain it to ourselves, but you poured your love into us so that we would then 
dispense that to others. Lord, help us to dispense it to those that that love would be the most magnificent in. Thank you for loving us the way you do. Now, Holy Spirit, would you come and just do the work in in our hearts that only you can do. Give us the humility to submit to one another. Not be so staunch and defensive of our own self, our own rights, our own wants and desires. Surrender ourselves to you. And in that, we're able to humble ourselves to one another. Lord, thank you for what you're doing right now. Such a beautiful thing. Just have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't believe the Holy Spirit is.